go to thecognitiverampage.com. Keep fueling the change. Help continue to allow this to happen. None of this would happen without you and your love and your support. Love you. The Cognitive Rampage, a scientific approach to self-discovery, change, and life optimization, is now available on Amazon. What I do in the book is I fuse the latest research from the cognitive, behavioral, social, environmental, and biological sciences. It's not just motivational fluff and wordplay. Now, I do talk about my own story, so there's some kind of inspiration in there, but I'm not just spinning words and hyping you up with motivational fluff. Whether you need a life change, simply enjoy self-exploration and optimization, want to discover new hidden passions, or reduce the life-altering effects of toil, anxiety, depression, all of those issues, this book is for you. This book is not a cookie-cutter method of steps to follow. You'll customize the scientific framework with your own personal beliefs to build your authentic change. That way you assimilate it faster. It's not just copying my beliefs and telling you step one, step two. These will come from your beliefs as how you extend and build the foundation upon this framework. You'll use this framework throughout your whole life, through every change, and through every age. These are not empty words of motivational spin. This book is an experience. The Cognitive Rampage is based in science and is built from your beliefs. It's a path to help you unleash your desired change. You can apply this method on your own with no harmful side effects. And we are live. Welcome to the Cognitive Rampage podcast. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you are living your Cognitive Rampage. Very exciting show today, full of competence. Dr. Matthew Smith, PhD, got to add those these days. As uh, a professor of health history at University of Strathclyde's Center for Social History and Health and Health Care. He's an author of An Alternative History of Hyperactivity, Food Additives, and the Feingold Diet, Hyperactive, The Controversial History of ADHD. And I know a lot of you listeners are seriously interested in hearing about that, as I've got enough messages this morning after the post. Uh, he has also published a book on the history of food allergy called Another Person's Poison, A History of Food Allergy. A current project or a current book he's working on um, is the, well, it's kind of the history of social psychiatry. Uh, I like to call it the history of mental health. I believe we'll get a little bit more into that. Uh, it talks about the link between socioeconomic factors and mental health. He's won the Roy Porter Award. Um, forgive my enunciation, but the uh, uh, Cag- Cagnigan? Uh, he'll fix me up like that. Uh, it's funny that I actually announce races and I can't announce anything, which are pronunciating anything, <laughs> which is funny. Uh, prize and Oppressment Bureau's Welcome Award for his research and writing has been on the BBC Radio 3 New Generation Thinker, a member of the Royal Society, Indenburg's Young Academy of Scotland, uh, writes a wonderful blog for psychology today, which I suggest you certainly go and read. I was trying to catch up on all those as well. Uh, so many wonderful writings. And whew, after that long intro, <laughs> things the man's done. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mac- Matthew Smith. Thanks very much. It's really good to be here. Well, I appreciate you coming on. All right. Well, uh, let's get to it. And I should say thanks for that great introduction. Uh, it's nice to hear that stuff wash over me a wee bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right to take those things in, man. I mean, a lot of the work that uh, people like you do uh, sometimes goes unnoticed and should not go unnoticed, especially the work you're doing on ADHD, which I know gets noticed. Uh, but some of the uh, blogs that you have written as I was going through them, I'm just like, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. Yes, I want to talk about that. 
Uh, I mean, there's even some you, you've written there that has to do with my uh, third book that I'm working on called Athletes Depression, actually. Well, that, that's actually going to be the next big project. So uh, we'll have to chat about that at some point. Uh oh, oh, man. So you're writing something similar. Well, we're, um, we just finished a, a, what's called a seed award project funded by the Welcome Trust on uh, LGBT sport and mental health, looking the history of that. And that is going to lead hopefully to uh, a big Welcome Trust award where we uh, really put sport and mental health under the microscope, both from a historical perspective and a contemporary current perspective. Um, and the two real I guess bookends of that are looking at sport as therapy. So when sport can be really good for folks, but also sport is a challenge to mental health. And I know that's something that uh, uh, you know quite a bit about. So um, anyways, sort of watch this space, I guess I would say. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been working on the book uh for, for about a year now, just um, uh, in a lot of podcasts on it, talking to a lot of athletes about it. It's a it, it, being an ex-athlete, my, well, I say ex-athlete, I don't know what that means, but uh, we're always pretty athletic. But um, I have found some interesting links, disconnects between actual depression itself, uh, different etiologies, et cetera, how it manifests. And uh, it, it's, it not only fascinates, but scares me at the same time. Mm. Well, I think our, our aim is really to use two, two aims. One is to use sport as a lens through which to understand mental health. So everything from concussion, you know, big, big news about the NFL and, and uh, concussion and football players, also in, in, you know, soccer players heading the ball, that sort of thing, especially when they use the hard leather ball, all the way up to what happens when you, your career ends, uh, issues with regards to, you know, sexuality, masculinity, femininity, all those sorts of issues we want to uh, talk about, but also how, you know, sport, sport can really, or mental health can be a way of really helping us, or sorry, sport can be a way of un- helping us understand mental health, but also mental health can be a way of understanding sport. You know, what, what really is the role of sport in our society? You know, we just had this, this big uh, uh, MME brawl that gathered all this attention. Is that really sport or is it, you know, is it something you go down and watch your kid play hockey or something like that? So we're really trying to critique and question and unpack both mental health and sport. So the two come together a wee bit. Oh, man, we, we may have to do a whole nother podcast just on that itself as we're both kind of developing that project. Uh, that that would be something I'd love to get into, but um, and I would, too. I will squirrel off in cognitive rampage on, on that with you right. for the next hour. Um, but before we kind of get into some of the work you do, the books you've written, the new one you're, you're writing now, maybe even some of the blogs, um, maybe a brief history kind of on yourself. Uh, what, what got you into the field? How'd you, uh, wind up where you are? Well, it's, it's sort of a meandering story. Um, I, love I started out, uh, I left, I left high school, you know, with a high school diploma, but didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I think like a lot of kids, Uh, leaving high school, you think, well, I've been in school for a while, maybe I should be a teacher. And so eventually I got a teaching uh, teaching degree, couldn't find a job as a teacher. Um, Who knows, maybe they knew something I didn't. But I did get a job working for the YMCA in my hometown of uh, Edmonton, Alberta in Canada. And one of the things that we did uh, on behalf of the province of Alberta was help kids who dropped out of school 
get back into school and, and help them access funding, provincial, provincial government funding to do so. And these would be kids between 16 and 24, usually from a variety of backgrounds, but some pretty darn tough backgrounds, you know, kids involved in, in gangs, kids involved in the criminal justice system, addiction, abuse, all sorts of stuff. I mean, people think Canada is nice and kind and fluffy, but we got a lot of the same social problems that anywhere else has. Um, and and one, of the, one of the tricks that we do, because we are desperate to help these kids, and a lot of them coming back to school was really tough for them. And one of the things that we do is ensure that they, if they seem to meet the criteria, they would get an ADHD diagnosis. And that was partly because we, th- we thought that this would help them. You know, the, the drugs would help them, the, but the, the uh, you know, whatever therapy, it was, there wasn't usually much therapy. It was just mainly the drugs, to be honest. But <laughs> the other thing is that that was a get-out-of-jail-free card. If, if they messed up, we could say, ah, you know, he's got an ADHD diagnosis, give him another chance. And for a lot of these kids, that was, that was really between, you know, having a stable place to live and a, a bit of structure and for him to go into school or being back on the streets. And so as, the, as my time at the Y evolved, I started thinking, you know, I don't remember kids growing up when I was uh, a kid having this diagnosis. And I started to question, you know, why, why are we just focusing on it's something in their brain? It's not all the crazy stuff that's happened and happened to them. It's not our school system. It's nothing outside. It's something inside in the head. And so my time at the Y kind of came to a, a, a bitter end. I decided to go back to graduate school and I did a master's degree looking at um, uh, the history of hyperactivity. Uh, and that really blew my mind because so much of how we understand ADHD today goes back to things that happened, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And I found that really interesting. I went back, uh, worked for a college for a while as a, as a, as a careers advisor, youth counselor, because I've always been interested in that. And then eventually I came over to the UK to do a PhD focusing on the link between food additives and hyperactivity, because I mean, one thing I think is probably worth stating up front is that I don't see ADHD as a, as, a, as a binary sort of thing, either one thing or the other. I see children all have, and adults, all exhibit certain types of behavior. And that, whether we see that behavior as positive or negative, can depend an awful lot on the, on the environment with which that kid's in. So if it's a rigid classroom structure, a more energetic, uh, boisterous kid like I was uh, for certain parts of my childhood, um, they're going to have, they're going to struggle a bit more. Now, on the other hand, I've always been very clear that environmental factors ranging from food, um, you know, parenting, school environment, access to nature, access to physical activity, uh, you know, all sorts of things can also have a bearing on children's uh children's behavior. And I think that's really key. It's, it, and it takes us away from saying, okay, something's messed up in your brain. We got to fix it. It's more looking at the big picture. And I think that's kind of the, in a way, that's the role of history to take the long view and kind of see how we got where we, we are. And maybe if there are any lessons from that, try to apply them. 
Yeah, too often uh, in psychology, mental health, um, I think, well, a little bit more recently than uh, we used to, the epigenetic effect is is ignored a lot. Uh, we, we look for that that simple cure or that simple reasoning, that explanation. I mean, addiction, for one, you have a disease, right? The, the wonderful thing to tell somebody, uh, <laughs> which science doesn't really back up, uh, in my opinion. But um you know, we ignore those things. And uh, I think I posted the other day on my Facebook page about, uh, you know, we look at our children as being broken or mentally ill, uh, but not this system that requires these children to fit into some very, very small box of a social construct of what we call an education system. If the kid doesn't fit into that box, well, they must be abnormal or in the abnormal range, you know, yeah. they would say. And, um, you know, when, when, when we don't take into account trauma, uh, experience. I mean, shoot, but you can look at a CEO, right? Where you see uh, uh, articles many times that come out about, well, the narcissism is great for CEOs, right? ADHD is great for entrepreneurs, right? You can use that in, in, in positive ways. But if you're 10, here's some methamphetamine, you know, we, we, we <laughs> throw them right on, on the drug. So uh, in your writing, what, what did you discover really on the history of how we got here? Well, it's, it's really it really starts out as an American story. Um, of course it does. So prior, <laughs> as, as some things do. Although I think it's interesting if you look at the broader, longer history of psychiatry and and in its relation to the United States. I would argue that the first half of the 20th century, American psychiatrists. Uh, taken from the outside world. So they get a lot of the biological ideas, the, the uh, psychoanalysis, obviously, and lots of other trends in psychiatry come to the United States from Europe. And then the second half of the, and, and sometimes actually physically in the form of psychiatrists in uh, you know Nazi Germany uh, who are of Jewish background trying to get the hell out of Dodge, so to speak. And they, they come to Canada and the United States and, and Britain and elsewhere. But in the second half of the 20th century, it's been American ideas about mental health that have really gone out to the rest of the world. So I think the ADHD story is, is an interesting example of that. So the real trigger for it, and there, there's lots of different factors uh, that I could go into, but for me, the real trigger, uh, what lights the fuse, so to speak, is Sputnik in 1957. Mm -hmm. So in 1957, uh, it's the height of the Cold War, and all of a sudden, the Americans feel like, you know what, we're not quite winning the Cold War, the, the, the science race in the way that we thought. So the Soviets get the uh, nuclear weapons, they start to advance in other areas of science, and then all of a sudden they launch these two Sputnik satellites. And you get this this huge reaction in, in the United States that goes across the political, military, educational, and scientific uh, institutions. And the very next year, 1958, we get the National Defense Education Act, which is really geared towards getting education in line with American national priorities, specifically winning the Cold War. And so prior to that, the education system that was present in a lot of parts of the United States was called progressive education. It comes from the philosophy of John Dewey. And it was very much along the lines of learning by doing, hands-on learning, child-centered learning, learning through projects. I mean, an example that I often give is, so you get some kids 
uh, in say, you know, grade three or something like that to grow some vegetables in a garden. So learning about biology and, and, and nature and that sort of thing. Then you get them to harvest the vegetables and come up and try to sell them. So they're learning about math and arithmetic and marketing and that. And, uh, and then finally, you, um, you get them to drop, you know, drop some ads and, and recruit uh, people to come and buy the vegetables. So it's, you're using this very practical thing to learn all these different skills, both soft skills and more you know, core academic skills. The National Defense Education Act totally upends that. That's the, that's the real enemy. And it's back to reading, writing, and arithmetic, you know, book learning, teacher-centered learning, test-taking, and they focus on English, mathematics, science, and foreign languages. And in some ways, it's a success uh, because, you know, by 1969, as, as we're all going to see in, in the movies pretty soon with the new film, about Neil Armstrong, uh, the United States gets to be the first on the moon. But the other thing... I, you know, for all the conspiracy theorists, allegedly, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. right? I'm just saying. I, I'm going to have to laugh and, and say that, yeah. right? Allegedly, so we could show that, hey, we're not that far behind yeah. your Russia. We, we've made it, right? So uh, yeah. there you go, conspiracy theorists. But, but the other two, the two things that the Defense Education Act also uh, impressed upon American educators was that no child, no matter what their background, should be content with dropping out. So it had to be everyone coming up, all, including kids in the American slums, everyone. And, and in order to make that a reality, they hired thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, child guidance counselors. And what the guidance counselors did was basically started to identify the sorts of behaviors that were associated with underachievement. You know, kids that would score well on aptitude or IQ tests but got poor grades and struggled in school. And lo and behold, the sorts of symptoms or the sorts of characteristics these kids had were things like hyperactivity, uh, inattention, impulsivity, defiance, and aggression, and, and really in that order. Um, and so that those two things really come together. Now, at the same time, we also have the the emergence of um, biological psychiatry in the United States and especially psychopharmacology. We get the first, uh, first antipsychotic drugs that help uh, take people out of asylums. You get, you know, tranquilizers, Valium, all these great drugs come out. And so the pharmaceutical industry is really keen to, to, uh, you know, come up with the next psychiatric magic bullet and Ritalin ends up becoming just that. And there's lots of interesting stuff about Ritalin as well. Um, but, you know, the, the there's a combination of what's happening in education, what's happening in science, including psychiatry and, and pharmacology, all wrapped up in what's going on in the United States more generally. Uh, and all of that creates the expectation that kids need to stay in school longer. They can't be content with manual labor and those sorts of jobs because apparently those jobs are disappearing. Um, and if we need diagnoses and drugs to make sure they get there, that's fine. Wow. So, I mean, you, you jump right through the deinstitutionalization. I, I did a podcast called The History of Mental Health, and I thought it'd be a quick one. 
uh, and I started getting into it, and I, I ended up doing part one and uh, haven't quite got the part two because it's so long. And that's one of the best kind of explanations to fast forward through how that all happened because there's so many variables to play into how we got here. Um, that that was unique for me to listen to and, and learn. That's something I wanted to talk about. So that transformation from the hands-on learning, et cetera, uh, explains a lot about where we are today. Uh, and then I guess to almost shove that type of education system down our children's throat of this is the way to do it for advancement uh, mm-hmm. has really brought us here. Then if you don't fit in that box, the abnormalities begin to come out. Uh, the drug companies essentially then start finding the magic bullet deinstitutionalization along the way, hence our homelessness problem that we have and our yeah. uh, overcrowded jails as well that come come with that. And um, where have we gotten to really today? I mean, it seems to still be expanding, right? I mean, we're still drugging our children left and right like it's nothing. Uh, should we be looking in other places uh, more specifically and uh, uh, things that maybe you have found? Yeah, well, I think in terms of where we are today, we're, we're in a really funny place because on the one hand, there's a real drive. And you'd know this from if you follow sport and mental health, there's a huge drive to destigmatize mental illness. Um, you know, mental illness is okay. And I've, I've been, you know, keeping track of, of sport and mental health stories on the BBC in the last couple of years. And there, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of people coming out. I, I have anxiety, I have depression, et cetera. And, that, and that's good. It's good to talk about mental health and illness and, and try to articulate how we're feeling. But I think when it comes to ADHD, we're in a, a different situation. And that's partly because we're talking about children. You know, if, if an adult sees that, you know what, I have these characteristics, they seem to fit into this ADHD diagnosis, and I want to take some drugs to help me get an advantage. I still think that's kind of sad that they need to do that. I mean, depending on the circumstances. Um, but it's totally different when you're talking about a four-year-old or a six-year-old. Um, and so I think that's one idea. And, and what what I think what the history really helps us to do is is to tease out the complexities in this grand these grand narratives about mental health and, and illness and psychiatry. It's not as simple as as we think it is. I mean, my I, I'm not a clinician, but and but I have kids, and I've always thought that if my kids started to uh, if, if a teacher came up to me and said, you know, he's not concentrating very well. Uh, he's struggling to do well in school. If we think we need to talk about this, I would go through all the environmental explanations first. And then if everything else wasn't working and, and I, and you know, I judged that the problem was big enough, then maybe I'd start to think about, uh, not probably not pharmaceutical intervention, but at least thinking, well, okay, maybe there's some kind of neurological thing going on. And even still, I'd probably think about trying to change the environment. I mean, there's many careers that are perfect <laughs> for people that have attention and hyperactivity uh, overload. Um, so in terms of specifics, uh, you know, my first book was on food additives and mental health. I believe you had uh, uh, Julia Rucklidge on a while back. And this is something that's, if you know the long history of, of food and health, the Greeks were talking about food and mental health, you know, but we've sort of forgotten that in the 20th century to a certain extent. Um, uh, but that sort of stuff is coming back. It, it's still seen as faddish, you know, all that's just 
but but that I think because any kind of diet is tends to be seen as fattish no matter what it is. So I think that that's a big one. Diet uh, should be looked at. I think um, looking at how much kids can engage in the outdoors and be active and and that sort of thing is really important. One thing that's uh, uh, become a popular uh, way of getting school kids kind of back on track here is uh, you do the daily mile. So the kid the teachers fed up, the kids aren't behaving. Everything, you know, sun's finally come out in Scotland like it did yesterday. And, okay, stop what you're doing. Put down your books. We're going to go out to the field and run run around and do our daily mile. Gets everyone out and about, just burn some steam, and then they're back in and maybe they can concentrate a wee bit better. So I think those sorts of things are important. But, you know, I mean, I've got two kids. My, my son in particular wasn't the easiest toddler and you know we realized that we weren't parenting to the best of our ability we uh, my wife I mean it was hers it wasn't me she took this positive parenting class and taught me some things and you know that made a huge difference so parents have to take some teachers have to take some responsibility for this as well during the 60s and 70s there was a a real reaction against the uh, prevailing idea that you know you're mentally unhealthy because of your mother. Usually, it was the mother, it wasn't the father. Usually, sometimes it was, but you know that kind of psychoanalytical idea that you know your mother's either smothered you or ignored you, and that's why you have all these neuroses. And we kind of went from that extreme to the extreme that parents can't do anything wrong. And of course, you know it's not as simple as that. It's somewhere in the middle. And I think if we're a bit honest with ourselves as parents, you know, we we can accept that. Um, you know, our kids aren't perfect, but we're not perfect either. Well, man, that takes some humility to say that. And a lot, a lot of <laughs> it does. A lot of parents will not do that. It, it must be, you know, the system. It must be the child. It must be the uh, brain development or something wrong with my my child. I mean, you touched on a lot of things that that get me thinking. Yeah, uh, Dr. Julia Rutledge was on for sure. She's coming on again in a couple months. Uh, Good. She's wrapped up in some research, but uh, mind blowing podcast again, just from the basic uh, implementation of certain minerals and things and how they affect it. And you know, uh, I think people skip over nutrition so quickly because they go, ah, it's too simple of a fix. You know, it can't be that easy. It must be complex, you know, for a little masturbation we like to do. It must be complex, you know. And, and again, our uh, most of our practitioners medically uh, don't take nutrition courses. I mean, all through my uh, getting becoming a master of mental health, I didn't take a nutrition course either. I had to go do that on my own. And, you know, with a world changing of so many different kinds of stimulation, uh, you know, Dr. Jack Cruz, who's been on a neurosurgeon who talked about overstimulation of the brain, exposure to blue light, lack of uh, vitamin D from being in the sun. Right. We don't do these things anymore. Uh, and what a cool idea that, you know, get the kid out, uh, move them around on the on the track, you know, get them moving out in the field. I mean, if the brain is already hyperactive or hyperstimulated, and then we say sit in this chair for 45 minutes and then free for five minutes and down for 45 minutes, right, or all day in a classroom, I mean, I, I mean, I was on Rogan uh, talking about that I, when I said, man, the, the kid doesn't, you mean he's just being a kid? You mean he wants to run around and have a good time and, and be curious and, and jump up and down and question things, and when they don't fit into that norm, we're so quick to throw what many people don't realize, a theoretical diagnosis, right? We, we listen to our practitioner that just says, hey, they have for sure. 
you know, they, they, you know, give out the pills, the medication so quickly and taking a look just at the basics, just looking at the nutritional aspects. And was there anything that you found uh, in uh, your in your research writing that book about food additives as far as uh, increasing uh, ADHD or the prevalence of at least those behaviors? Well, this kind of connects to um, the last book I wrote on food allergy, because if you want to find kids that sound like the ADHD kids of today, you don't look in psychiatric literature during the first half of the 20th century. You look in allergy literature. Wow. You will not find them in psychi- psychiatry. You won't find them in, in the American Journal of Psychiatry, but you will find them in, in the writing of allergists. What? That's because the connection between food allergy and mental health just goes back a long, long ways. It's always been highly controversial, but it's still there, and it continues to be there today, and I think it connects to the work that you know Bonnie Kaplan and, and uh, Julia Rutledge and others do. But So what, what happened... Um, in when 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 ADHD emerged as kind of a, a, a very common diagnosis, is that it the the parameters for what caused it really narrowed. So rather than looking at the environment, looking at nutrition, it just focused the, the researchers focused on the brain. And what happened was that a lot of parents found that you know what this, these drugs don't seem to do that much. Or they, they discovered that, you know what, when, when my kid eats this, they seem to go off the rails. And the guy, that the allergist uh, who really theorized all this was Benjamin Feingold, who's a San Francisco-based allergist. And he, he effectively came out of retirement um, when he was in his mid to late 60s to, because he, he, he started to make this connection between food additives, especially uh, coal tar derivative dyes. So these are the food colors that effectively come from coal tar dyes. And the, these dyes are the first industrial dyes that were developed in Germany and, and in Britain. Um, and so they were used in food. They're also used in medical research. It, it's quite interesting. The first uh, antibiotics uh, come from the same derivative because they started to so you, uh, if a scientist was working on cell tissue, cell cultures, they would dye the different uh, critters, different colors, and they realized that some of the dyes would kill certain bacteria, basically. And so, oh my what God. Hap- yeah, it's really, it's fascinating. So that's the first, those are the first uh, sulfa drugs. Now, in the, during the war and, and shortly afterwards, the Second World War and shortly afterwards, they started to try to find the next great antibiotic magic bullet. So they had penicillin and they wanted to get the next big, big one. Because at that point, actually, you know, TB was still a big killer. You know, we had yet to come with a, come up with a polio vaccine. So infectious diseases were still, you know, really, really dangerous. I mean, they still are now, but um, they were still killers. And what they found is that when they used some of these drugs, they found that the, the rats, the lab animals, calm down. And so these drugs ended up, or the, these drugs ended up being used as uh, the first antipsychotic drugs. So there's clearly a connection between coal tar derivative chemicals and what happens in the brain. And so when Feingold started to make these connections, uh, he tried to get it published in legitimate medical journals. I mean, this is a guy who is a real allergy leader 
He had a really good, uh, um, uh, he had huge respect from his peers and he just got the bums rush basically. You know, no one wanted to talk to him. They wouldn't accept his papers. And so he basically, although he'd keep publishing in, in say less uh, or a bit more obscure medical journals, uh, he turned to parents and the parents really worked with him in symbiosis to, uh, to work on this idea. And a whole bunch of tests were devised to test the Feingold hypothesis. The vast majority of them were poorly designed and, and either you could read them one way or another. Actually, the, the best one, the first really decent trial was the one done by Bonnie Kaplan, just to bring it back to her again. Um, she did a trial in Calgary, Alberta, and it, you know, it was a properly controlled trial. And lo and behold, it showed that there was some connection there. So there's this connection is is really interesting because it shows how sometimes society can outpace science. Because if you ask most psychiatrists today, especially in North America, not so much here, because I think psychiatrists in the UK have always been a bit more pluralistic and open-minded in their thinking. They haven't been, you know, as one way or the other. But I think in North America, if you ask most psychiatrists about the Feingold diet, they'd first say, what? And then if you explain, well, what about food dyes and, and, and ADHD? And they'd say, oh, give me a break. That, that's been disproved years ago. But if you look at, Amer- uh, look at food companies, they've voluntarily started to take these dyes out because they know that there's something to it. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting one. And part of it is it's difficult to do these trials, although the, the, you can overcome it. And, and some of the, the difficulties have been overcome in recent trials. But it gets to some really basic things about, you know, what kind of food should we be feeding our children, undermining this kind of very uh, single track idea of ADHD as just being a uh, you know, something that's genetic and, and neurological. And of course, the, the food out of the theory connects to the brain, everything connects to the brain, but it's a different way of getting there. Um, so I think, you know, and more people are, are sympathetic towards it, but, you know, the FDA still um, is on the fence. Um, they're not on, on the, this is rubbish side anymore. They, they are really on the fence, but, you know, the European food standards, uh, Regulations have changed to lay, you know, identify food colors more on food packaging, and, and some companies have, have changed what they use to dye uh, foods. I mean, a lot of, we've been dyeing foods forever. We can dye foods with lots of different things. We don't have to use the coal tar dyes. Um, you know, you beets. If, if you've ever eaten beets and spilled some of the beet juice on a white shirt you know that there are some really good other dyes. I mean, turmeric, another really good dye that you might uh, discover in the kitchen. Um, so we, there, are, there are alternatives, but it also gets back, you know, do, do we really need our kids to be eating blue icing or, you know, hyper or uh, uh, fluorescent green candies? You know, that's all marketing. It has nothing to do with food. <laughs> yeah, that's what was sparking me as you started talking about the link to dyes and those things. What hit me in the head is, well, shoot, most kids, I mean, you order a Gatorade by the color. You know what I mean? It's, uh, <laughs> that's what you do, the orange one, right? The blue and the red one, the, the icy pops go on and on and on. 
And these are the treats that I was given, right? These are the, as a kid, right? That this is what we see. And uh, I wrote a paper in college I've referenced too many times on the podcast about that marketing was the end of human civilization, that we no longer think for ourselves. We're told how we're supposed to think. And you made such a great point that uh, uh, our culture, I, I would say our economy moves faster than, than science does. And uh, we tend to throw everything out there and then go, oh, no, we should probably reel some of that back in a little bit. And, uh, we didn't realize that, you know, um, Tony Wright, who's just on the podcast, has a amazing theory about how we're actually de-evolving and becoming dumber, but begin ourselves to uh, think arrogantly that we're getting smarter. He used uh, examples about uh, nuclear weapons we make, right? When a, when a species makes weapons that destroys itself, have we not lost it, right? And as we begin to make foods and study these things that have effect on our children, I mean, now all the research linking the gut to brain functioning as well, yeah. uh, we see that. And But yet, of course, a psychiatrist is going to, you know, look away at research that says that your hammer isn't the solution for this nail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think to their, to their defense, psychiatrists have a darn difficult job. I and mean, it's not like um, depression is, is, has, has seen the same sort of uh, improvements in treatment as cancer or heart disease. Yes, there, there are some drugs you can take, but we still find more and more people being diagnosed with depression. And a lot of the factors are totally out of, out of the uh, psychiatrist's hands. I mean, in the just turning to social psychiatry stuff for a minute, I think, um, you know, during the 1950s and 60s when social psychiatry was becoming a, a major uh, uh, influence in American psychiatry in particular, there was this very sensible idea that, you know what, if you grow up in really stressful, uh, fraught uh, neighborhoods and there's lots of violence and chaos and you don't know where the meal is going to come from next, yeah, people get a bit anxious and depressed. Now, recently there's been, well, not recently, but over the last few decades, we've had more uh, neurological studies to kind of associate stress with different hormone levels that lead to um, brain changes that result in depression. That, to me, that's kind of the least interesting bit because it, we still have the same problem. Well, we have to get back to the basics of how do we create societies that don't have those stresses. Some parts of the world, I mean, Scandinavia is probably the best example they've made real big strides in trying to address those sorts of issues, but a lot of parts of the world seem to be going backwards. I mean, one of the, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm keen to do with the social psychiatry work is come up with uh, recommendations for current mental health strategy and uh, a book that is just coming out uh, that uh, I co-edited, uh, it's called Preventing Mental Illness, Past, Present, and Future. And we're, we look at all the different ways in which societies have tried to prevent mental illness in the past. And so and some of the explanations are what we what we probably describe as crazy. So there's a great chapter by Dennis Doyle on comic books and, and child mental illness. Uh, this was a this the idea that you know you expose kids to comic books, they'll go crazy. Just like probably you might remember in the uh, 1980s and 90s, heavy metal music or rap was going to turn everyone nuts uh, and that sort of thing. But one, when you look at the, the history of those sorts of ideas, you do get that. It, it, it's sort of the elephant in the room. If we can make society more egalitarian, 
it's going to be easier on our mental health. And that that's going to pay dividends because in most countries these days, most developed countries have high rates of mental illness and society pays an absolute fortune in trying to deal with that. And I do wonder if something like having a universal basic income to ensure that people were above a certain threshold and had a bit more freedom to do what they wanted to do in life rather than just be a slave to the man, <laughs> the man basically. Um, I, I would, I, well, I'm, I'm confident actually that that would, that would pay off in the long term, just in terms of health benefits. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I think, love those yeah. ideas, man. I'm, I'm way for actually those things. I mean, we can look at Maslow and his hierarchy very simplistically to mm. see what that may do. Uh, but I, I can see every, um, you know, hardcore right winger has already clicked off the show now once they hear yeah. that, um, you know, because the idea of going, no, competition makes us right that we yeah. must compete. And this is how we go further. Uh, but in competition, people lose. And in the structure or confines of what we've created and like you said, developing countries, well, we have a lot of, uh, quotes, losers. And I don't mean it as far as losers. I, I mean it. They don't win or they don't make it yeah. or they don't achieve a level. And I, I, I don't know. It's somewhat of a cop out, I think, for a researcher to go, well, that's just how we are. That's just how the society is. So we have to cope and make medicines that then cope. We're such a reactive species uh, mm. to what is happening rather than looking at go, hey, how do we ease the mind of everyone or as many people as we can? Um, it's man, you bring up so many good points about that. But how do how do we take a look right at our society and then backpedal from what we've become used to backpedal from the competition, backpedal from our Darwinian theory of uh, of social or human development? I mean, uh, as as this has progressed us when I mean, this speaks a lot to Tony Wright's theory, man, that this competition has progressed us forward to worsen our situation and you know with all the research all the medicine all the funding all the mental health awareness months all the depression stigma releasing all of this stuff and we show more depression we show more mental illness yeah uh yeah absolutely well i think it i think with respect to kind of the political side of things I think it's it's sort of a simplistic way of looking at it to say that you know you're gonna you're gonna lose on the competitive front. Humans they like to compete, but we can compete in all sorts of different ways. It doesn't have to be life and death competition, I guess. Um, you know, I think that that that's an important point to make. I mean, one of one of the and and getting to the sort of the what what are actually what are humans made of and how does that make us. Uh, in the world, how, do, how does that change the way we, we act in the world? One of the first things I ever wrote was uh, a very short article. Um, I think it was something along the lines of consumerism or citizenship. And it, it reflected on the idea that was uh, came out in a very controversial book by Francis Fukuyama, The End of History and the Last Last Man. And one of, one of Fukuyama's arguments was that and it was published at the end of the Cold War. And basically he was saying, this is the end of history. We're just going to be liberal democracies that that are you know, use capitalism and, and that's going to be the end of it. And he, he went back to a couple philosophers saying that, well, if you look at humans, really they have two main drives, self-preservation, which I think you get from Thomas Hobbes, and to procreate, you know, to, to make more of ourselves. 
okay, sure, we can get that. And his argument was that uh, uh, consuming is the best way of doing that. So we, in capitalism, so you, you try to make as much money as you can to preserve yourself and your kin. And, and it, that also allows you to buy the flash cars and flash clothes. So, so you're the preening peacock, right? It's a, a lot of it's very, very much yeah, Darwin and the ape sort of stuff. But I, I realize that actually, okay, if we take that on board, self-preservation and you know, wanting to appear good to others, that doesn't mean that we need consumerism to do that. We can do that very, very much through you know, being a good citizen. Um, you know, if we change our society to more to reflect, okay, um, if you're seen as a good person in society, which I think in, in smaller communities where uh, in the past where people were more on show, you know, people would know your business and they would know if you were an upstanding person or not. Um, whereas today, it, it's, no one knows that, but they'll know if you drive past in a Porsche. Um, so I think, you know, th- there's ways of there's ways of changing society that doesn't mean that we have to really change who we are because yeah i mean we we are pretty much what we are in terms of we want to preserve ourselves we all want to you know feel good and be the one that can attract a pretty girl or guy or whatever but that doesn't mean that the ways we do that have to be so self-destructive yeah there's uh you were speaking a little bit on the social psychology and dr gabor mate uh ha- has been probably one of the loudest uh voices about the influence of uh, not being connected uh to our communities not being connected as a tribe and how this has a, a an influence on our development and um do you see a, a connection somewhere between uh city living versus living tribally uh I, I see the conundrum that a lot of times we're caught up in is that cities somehow are are better for the environment right no cars right sustaining but uh, they skip things like well where are you growing your food how do you feed that many yeah. people right you gather that many of us in a location um have you i i know you wrote an article uh, about cities versus community living uh can you kind of recap some of that well, it's, I think it's a real difficult one for, and I think, you know, environmental reasons as well as psychological reasons. Um, you know, there have been studies that seem to indicate that the ideal community would be one where, you know, maybe 150 people or you kind of knew everybody to a certain degree and, and people would be willing to help you and that, and that sort of thing. You know, I don't think that we're going to be able to go back to communities of 150, but I think we can com- create communities within cities that are more um, that are more cohesive, where there's more connection between people. But I think you know, ideas like basic income can really help with that. So you know, people aren't away at the work, slaving away. 12 hours a day um, and then come back at, <laughs> at night and never see anyone. Um, but it, there has to be a passage or there has to be a transfer of certain powers down to individual communities so that they can kind of take ownership of these sorts of things for themselves. Um, places like in, in France, you get a lot more of this where you know, local community municipal groups have a lot more control over what happens in the community than, say, in, in, uh, in Britain. I mean, one, one thing that we've uh, been wrestling with in Scotland is simply issues uh, uh, such as land ownership. So Scotland has the uh, 
lowest ratio of landowners to land in Europe. So you have about 500 rich guys who owned most of the land in Scotland, and a lot of it's simply used to raise grouse and deer to shoot at, basically. I mean, that's pretty much it. But Scots, as I've learned in the eight years living here, are enormously innovative, resourceful, enterprising people. And if you turned a lot of that land ownership over to them, there'd be so much more um, so much more done with the land than what is done with it currently. And so I think those sorts of things can be really useful to, me- to the end of mental health because it gives people that sort of empowerment. You know, pe- people want, I think people want responsibility, but they also want a bit of a safety net. And that's, that's the kind of balance that you need to get in societies so that you, know, you feel that you do have a responsibility if you really try to achieve, you're going to get benefits from that, not just financial benefits, but, you know, pure esteem and that sort of thing and feeling like you're a good person. But it's not an all uh, uh, a zero-sum game. If you mess up for some reason, you're not going to just end up out on the streets, which is, kind of, I think, more of maybe the, you know, rugged individualism uh, that the American, um, on, Americans on the right sort of think, you know, you, you, if, if you've made it, clearly you had the right stuff and you worked damn hard. And that, that's what it was. It has nothing to do with luck or anything. I mean, there's an interesting uh, a book um, called The Spirit Level. Uh, and, and that kind of ta- try to undermines that whole idea that, you know, it, it's, it's hard work and just the talented people, the cream rises to the, cro- to, to the top. There's all sorts of other things involved, of course. And I think we need to recognize that. But yeah, the, the city versus country stuff is, is tricky. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. I live right on the edge of the, of the kind of the Glasgow conurbation. It means that I can walk out into the country in about five minutes and be completely on my own for hours at a time. But I can also ride my bike into the, into the city center and be in one of the most amazing, wonderful cities in about 40 minutes. So few of us, some of us get the benefits of both, I guess, but not many. Yeah, I, I often, uh, well, the development of the suburb, right, is kind of what, what that was, that idea. But now the suburbs have, have sprawled and become so large now. They're like little mini cities, you know, among, among themselves. That we, we don't find that uh, that space to, to get out anymore. And um, you spoke a lot about the economic implications as far as society is concerned, where, uh, you know, the, the strong make it, you must have, we, we, you know, work hard. I can hear it. Everybody that says that you can make it versus that has already made it. It seems uh, nobody that's yeah. struggling, working 40 hours, 50 hours a week, right. Is out there, you know, saying the idea or telling people how to make it. And we tend to idolize, right, those people that have made the money, right, that have owned the land, that do the thing. They must have it figured out. Uh, and so many times we toss the idea of luck, location, who you know, right place, right time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of this, I think, weighs into our social or into our, um, that's funny, a Freudian slip there, weighs into our mental health when I was about to say, especially with social media. Yes, yeah. We're, we're, we're seeing, uh, have you found any, uh, you know, in your research or, or, or uh, writing about ADHD, a potential rise or increase of these symptomatic uh, uh, behaviors linked to things like social media or, or these ideas? Well, I think, I think screen time is certainly a factor. The more time kids spend in front of, uh, uh, you know, computer screens, phones, TV, if any of them watch TV anymore. Um, I think that's certainly a factor. I think with respect to 
social media, it sort of feeds into the that kind of rapid pace culture. Richard de Grandpre wrote a re- really interesting book about ADHD about probably at least 10, 12 years ago, where he tapped into this whole idea of you know, rapid fire culture and and how that that can I think that can actually be quite positive for people that that are a bit hyperactive, hyperactive and inattentive. But on the other hand, I think what's what really is the problem is that social media fuels so many anxieties in young people. They're not good enough. They don't have enough friends. They don't have enough followers. You know, they it just sort of reveals your social status to anyone who who's on who's on the internet. And I think that that can that's the real problem uh, when it comes to mental health. Um, and of course, you can extend that to things like body image and and uh, all sorts of issues surrounding that. But yeah, I think it, it's an interesting one because, yeah, it, it it seems to be that there's because social media is so instant, you can get some something out of it very quickly, and that I think for some some kids with ADHD that that can be quite a positive thing, especially if it it takes them down the right rabbit hole. I guess I guess. Because the problem is that you know, with the internet, you never know what rabbit hole you're going to go down, I guess. Uh, but no, that's an interesting one. I think the other thing is that in the last, well, since the emergence of the internet, two things. One is that more people find out about disorders like ADHD, but they also find out about the about alternatives. So they might come onto your podcast or they might find out about uh, you know, some of the food additive theories and the fine gold association and those sorts of things. So it's sort of, it's democratized knowledge to a certain extent, but then some of the things, of course, out there are, aren't very uh, found, well-founded in science or anything at all. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so you end up going down some rabbit holes that are probably not very good, but there are some good ones as well. So I think that, that's, a, that's quite an important development because in the past, you just go into your doctor, they'd tell you, and then that was the end of it. Yeah, that certainly still happens. And I can certainly tell you about rabbit holes. Uh, I've been doing this for almost five years now. Uh, and I have found myself down some uh, Alice, in Wonderland, uh, Alice in Wonderland rabbit holes where I'm going, how did I get here? Uh, and now with the symptom checker on WebMD, oh, my God. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, I, I meant to ask you when we were talking about uh, food implications on ADHD, did you find any, we talked about the dyes already, uh, was, were there any other direct foods that either did or did not help uh, with the, uh, quotes ADHD uh, being, uh, being prevalent in a, in a child? Yeah. Well, the original diet focused, the Feingold diet, this is from you know early 70s, focused on food dyes, food colors, and then soon after preservatives were added. But Feingold also believed that certain uh, fruits and vegetables with certain chemicals in them could cause problems as well. And I think in a way this gets back to his allergy background. Not, not necessarily that he was seeing as a, it as an allergic reaction, but as an allergist. He would have known that you know some people eat a peanut and they'll drop dead. You know that it's not a such a big jump from that to, to thinking some person could eat you know food A and it can be very helpful. Another person it can cause them some mental disturbance. So those were the main ones. He he was concerned about sugar, uh, refined sugar, 
but he didn't want to take on the, the sugar lobby. Yeah, good luck. Um, yeah, uh, so that he kind of steered clear of that. But what's interesting about the Feingold family, so the people, um, the Feingold Association, uh, the families that they supported them, is that they would figure out a lot of this stuff for themselves. You know, they maybe try the you try the basic Feingold diet. You start adding in other foods, see if they have any impact. No, okay, keep eating that. Oh, there's still some problems. Uh, maybe it's some other thing. So it's a real story of uh, trial and error um, for people to figure out these things, especially you know, when when our foods have so many ingredients in them, uh, when they're mass produced in big facilities with all sorts of stuff flying around and you don't, and, and, you know, 150 years ago, most of the food people ate would have come from a very small radius around where they lived. Now, a lot of our food is flown in from, you know, thousands of miles away. Um, so you don't necessarily know what's in it, what pesticides have been used, what preservatives have been used, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's tricky for folks to do that, but yeah, um, because it because these reactions tended to be very individualistic, different foods could be implicated. But I think the basic idea was you stick to. It's a bit like Michael Pollan what he says about food. So you eat food, so meaning not chemicals, mainly plants, not so much or not too much, you know. If you stick with that, you probably most people will be fine. But of course, then you still have the you know, people that are allergic to certain things, and you know, so it, it, it's complicated. A bit like mental health, it's, there's no one size fits all solution, unfortunately. Yeah, and until I go and trying to ask those simple questions, what three things could somebody <laughs> do to do right? And and we and even myself knows how theoretical these things are. Um, you know, I, I wonder how much the implication of of even just being told at 12 years old, at 22 years old, at four years old, that you are this diagnosis, that you yeah. are this thing uh, that, well, is theoretical that we've come up with as a thing based on social constructs. Right. Um, probably a two part question here. Right. Is uh, how much have you found that being told that? uh is uh well affecting the child etc and where did adhd come from where 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 did we come up with this uh, this theory mm. well i think for the first part of the question i think you said or you mentioned earlier on something about people come up with or pharmaceuticals Pharmaceutical companies telling people that they have an ADHD diagnosis. Diagnosis. I think a lot of people interpret it more as they become ADHD. So that becomes their identity. And for adults, I think that's that's okay. If, if that helps you get through life, if it helps explain why life can be difficult and why you don't always succeed, and if it maybe helps you gain skills to overcome some of those difficulties, you know, be more mindful and, and that sort of thing. I think that's a positive thing, but it's very, very diff- different if you're, yeah, you're 12, 12 years old and you're told, yeah, something's messed up in your brain. You're going to need to rely on these drugs for the rest of your life. Cause like, unlike most other drugs, you, you know, they're, they're drugs prescribed early on in life. And the implication is that you're maybe a few people will grow out of this stuff. Um, but a lot of people won't. And, and even how you define growing out of it can be 
can be tricky. I mean, it's interesting that there've been a few studies looking at age cohorts in, in schools and you know, not surprisingly, it's the youngest kids in a class that tend to have higher rates of ADHD diagnoses. So maturity, you know, my, my daughter started school this year. She's the very youngest uh, in her group. You know, I, I don't think she'll have to get diagnosed with ADHD, but we know that because she's the youngest, she'll, you know, she'll be behind in a few things. But we also know that she is the youngest and we know how much a kid can change in a year. Um, so I think, you know, that that's the problem. People, people just, it becomes a great explanation for all the problems that they have rather than, um, you know, something that is a construct and reflects uh, a disjunct, it's disjuncture between an individual and their society and their environment. Uh, and it puts all the onus on the individual to change rather than the society and the environment. Um, and, you know, in terms of, where that idea came up with or what where where it emerged when the very year that Sputnik uh launched uh these psychiatrists in Rhode Island came up with a new disorder called hyperkinetic impulse disorder and unlike all the previous uh descriptions of hyperactivity in children that came before that where these kids were I mean they were they were messed up you know they were in institutions they were hurting their siblings and their parents. They were just really, really disruptive. Uh, they weren't just having trouble in school. They're, they're kind of causing some mayhem. Um, the, disorder, the description of that disorder, hyperkinetic impulse disorder, could be applied to a much wider range of kids. And that, that's really the original diagnosis. And if you compare that to how DSM-5 uh, describes ADHD, pretty much the same thing. Man, I see. I've, I've talked a lot, uh, conspiracy theory ish, uh, about the idea that we broaden the idea of diagnosis with the DSM five that they open it up so more people fit in a qualification of a diagnosis. Thus, we can now drug more people, uh, or we can sell not necessarily drug people. We can sell more pharmaceuticals, right? Because people fit into this. They shorten the the spectrum though for kids in ADHD, although it had already been affected. It's already out there. You have teachers verbally diagnosing a child that have no training whatsoever. They call parents in and go, I believe them to be ADHD. I actually spoke to a, a friend of mine uh, a couple years ago, uh, who uh, she called me crying, basically saying, hey, um, with no doctors, no anything, they called her and her child in into the uh, classroom or into the office and said, look, uh, your child has ADHD. We know it. Uh, we've seen that. And uh, we're not going to allow your child back in the classroom until you go see a doctor to have it diagnosed. And here's the doctor we want you to go see to yeah. have this done. I was like, are you kidding me? That they wouldn't, yeah. they're almost forcing the diagnosis. Like, yeah, and by the way, here's our doctor. Go see our doctor uh, that's going to, you know, back us up on this. Yeah. No, I've, I've heard many stories like that, both historically and also, you know, in my, my own life. Um, and yeah, it just, it's just a very simplistic answer to a very complex problem. 
Oh, I love the way you put that. See, that that should be what we tell the parents, right? Is no, it's not this clear definition of, hey, here's an easy solution. But I think, you know, as parents, maybe we want that easy solution to say, okay, now we know what it is. Now, since we know what it is, we can treat it with something. And as we've discussed here for a very length of time, that it's food, it's it's society, it's social, it's all the different influences that really begin to shape this. And I, I'm going to have to say it. What is normal anyway versus absolutely. what we're supposed to do? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of <laughs> trying to accept people for who they are. And, and yeah, everyone wants to be better. But, you know, let, let's, let's accept people for who they are first and then try to go on from that rather than you've got to be this or else you're a failure. Yeah, I think uh, I I think I've said it before, and uh, I, I got led into the back end of this very very global, huge, massive um, uh, technologies company. Uh, I'll leave their name out. Um, I'll just say it starts with a G. And um, I was privy to their sales force hiring side and the types of tests that they give their salespeople. Uh, and what they typically do is they hire the salespeople that are out of range that typically uh, any other company would go, oh, no, no, definitely no. Uh, they hire those that are high on these spectrums of so-called ADHD, hyperactivity, uh, even narcissism and things like that, uh, because they have found that from a sales standpoint, they generate 30 to 40 percent more sales than, say, that um, balanced person. Right. So they're literally looking for that person. And those people succeed there. And as we've discussed before, uh, when we well eliminate that part of the child by certain drugs and begin to change them for their brain develops, we we miss those individual beautiful people. And, um, you know, I, I guess one last question before we wrap it up. I, I know you have a class there to do. Um, well, very simply, is ADHD a global epidemic or, or is it not? Well, I think it's in terms of a, a medical phenomenon in, in, in the sense that is it something that millions of physicians and teachers and parents across the globe are concerned about then yes it is i think the other should it be a should it be a, a, a global phenomenon i would say probably not and actually one of the most recent articles i've, I've, I've written on this called hyperactive around the world i look at different countries and how what their adhd journey has been and actually, although the American idea has spread to many other countries, often what happens in those countries is a lot of contesting those ideas, negotiating with those ideas, and changing them in a way that suits that particular environment. So, you know, although a lot of people say, well, you know, ADHD is something that exists, and in the same way for everyone not just across the globe, but also across time as well. So, you know, historically, you know, for me, that's just not the reality because you see many countries changing the way that they treat, you know, understand that those sorts of conditions. And if you, you try to understand why that's the case, then you get some really interesting ideas. And I, I think that's the real, that's the real fascinating bit for me is how societies adapt not only to um, 
ideas from outside, but also you know to the challenges that their children pose to them. Um, you know, the, the Americans in the 1950s and 60s created ADHD. Um, other countries are going to create other problems <laughs> for their kids, uh, and I'm sure the, you know, the pharmaceutical companies will be right there to try to solve those problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we laugh right and say it in jest, but man, they certainly are. Um, I, I guess uh, I like to say or, or ask a guest before we before we leave the podcast because I promise you, podcast remorse exists. You'll come off a podcast and go, "Oh, I meant to say," or "I meant to cover." Or, I wanted to say, uh, "Was there anything that you wanted to cover or get to or or talk about?" Maybe that uh, we didn't get to, or or something you you wanted to say. I think the only thing that I would say is that. If you and this is Matt Smith, the historian, talking. If you really want to understand mental health, you have to look at the history of it, and the history of it is absolutely fascinating. And maybe it doesn't always give you the sort of answers that you want, but there are answers there. And uh, I would just encourage all your listeners to you know look into some of the great histories of mental health and psychiatry that are out there. And I think that that's a really good way of approaching the topic. Oh, uh, perfect, man. And I heard uh, there's probably some good books uh, that this guy, Dr. Matthew Smith, uh, <laughs> has written where you could really get into the history uh, a lot more here. Um, tell everybody where they can get your books, where they can read your blog, maybe things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, probably the best way to find out about my publications is just... Google my name and, and Strathclyde and you'll, you'll get a nice uh, profile on all the publications there. Uh, the, the, uh, po- the, hmm, the blog is uh, called The Short History of Mental Health and it's on the psychologytoday.com website. And yeah, I really enjoy doing that um, because it just frees me up to kind of say what I want within reason. And I get all sorts of interesting people contacting me because of that. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, I think that's probably good enough for now. Even though Matthew Smith is a common name, I'm sure they can track me down if they try hard enough. (laughs) Well, we certainly did. Uh, We we found you and uh, and we're happy to have you on the show. And thank you for for sharing this information, uh, even just a short hour that we had. And uh, we will share the links to when we post this uh, where everybody can find your blog. I seriously suggest everybody uh, go to that blog, Short History of Mental Health on psychologytoday.com. Uh, some great uh, articles there. We touched on a lot of those today as well, but they get more in depth. So uh, thank you, Matthew, for coming on the show. And I look forward to talking to you as I'm kind of, uh, um, well, I don't want to say finishing up. I hate over-promising, right, about, about <laughs> when I'll be done with uh, athletes' depression. Uh, but uh, I'd love to talk, to talk to you more about some things you found or maybe even use you as uh, one of those editors since uh, I certainly need editors after I'm <laughs> done uh, uh, writing my stream of consciousness. Right. Well, it's been a real pleasure, Adam, and uh, I appreciate uh, you reaching out to me. All right, man. Uh, Have a great day, and uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope you uh, all enjoyed that show. Uh, I enjoyed uh, talking with uh, Dr. Matthew Smith, uh, most certainly and uh have enjoyed every bit of it and if you would at uh well when you have a chance uh, just go to psychologytoday.com backslash us backslash 
blog or just go to Psychology Today and type in short history mental health. You'll find it. Uh, tons of amazing and really in-depth articles about uh, ADHD itself, the history of it. And I would seriously uh, and, and most firmly concur that if you study the history of something rather than the symptoms of something and what someone is telling you is, uh, you can make a better judgment for yourself about what it actually is, including listening to myself on the podcast, right? The history is the tell of the present and the future as well and how we got here. And you can pick up his books too. Um, I, I think uh, he said it perfectly. Go into his blog. You'll be able to find uh, a link to all of those books. And and when we post this podcast, iTunes and Stitcher, Podbean, everywhere else, uh, well, anywhere you listen to podcasts, we are there. Uh, you'll find a easy link there as well as going to my website, adamlowry.com, L-O-W-E-R-Y, or cognitiverampage.com, and uh, the post will be there probably, uh, I don't know, in a couple days. So we, we like and enjoy uh, to allow, if you will, those that watch live to have uh, first privy to that information uh, on YouTube where uh, this was filmed and where we go live. And then uh, for those of you that listen to the podcast, thank you very much for subscribing to the Cognitive Rampage. And if you have not, please go to the Cognitive Rampage on iTunes or uh, Stitcher for Android. Subscribe, review. It really helps a lot when you do that. Uh, almost three or four, going on five years almost we've been doing this. So uh, thank you to all of the listeners, those that share uh, and enjoy the Cognitive Rampage podcast. Uh, thank you once again, uh, Dr. Matthew Smith, for coming on and sharing that information. We look forward to a lot of guests we're getting lined up as well. Uh, I think uh, Tracy um, Tracy Gomez will be back on. We're rebooking her as well. Uh, again, Dr. Julia Rutledge will be on soon. Uh, again, I'm also working on um, somebody that is a huge virtual mentor to me. Uh, I wrote about him in my book, The Cognitive Rampage, which is now available on Amazon. A little shameless plug there. Uh, Dr. Mark L. Gordon, who has done some amazing work uh, looking at uh, uh, hormones, steroid ideas, uh, and has just advanced uh, the treatment of PTSD and addiction. Uh, you can also find uh, Dr. Mark L. Gordon's, which I think is one of the most interesting podcasts of all time ever uh, on Joe Rogan Experience podcast. It's one of his uh, earlier ones. So look that up. A lot of exciting things going on here at the Cognitive Rampage, Cognitive Cave Studio. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening to the podcast today. We will, uh, well, we'll see you again, well, shortly. Whatever shortly means to you. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you're living your Cognitive Rampage. Love you.